we're continuing in church history. Hi, Conrad. Continuing in church history, and we're talking about kind of a uh, a bunch of, of religious change that happened post World War II. We talked about Christian conservatism within the evangelical camp. How how that changed evangelicalism, but there's also some backlashes. There's some some re reactions from other camps because of some of the changes going on, at least in part because of some of the changes going on within the evangelical community. In 1962, the Second Vatican Council convened. Anybody know the more colloquial way of referring to this? Vatican II, because you should refer to these as movie sequels, right? Um, no, well, it, it is. It's colorful stuff. But if you remember the first Vatican Council that we talked about about 100 years ago, um, it had been convened back in 19, 1868 to address modernism, liberalism, rationalism, all these changes in how they were bad. You know, you, you, you can't change tradition. You shouldn't be messing with that sort of thing. That's the whole point of the first Vatican Council. As well as to comprehensively examine what's the role of the Pope. What does the Pope get to do with stuff? So this is the one where Pope Pius IX, did anybody remember Pope Pius IX? Probably not. Okay, this is the guy who made venerating Mary as the sinless co-mediatrix with Christ church dogma. You can't question that. She saved the world with Jesus. In fact, because she wasn't a direct child of God, in many ways she was even better than Jesus, more holy than Jesus, because she did it on her own steam. But she was born sinless from Ian, so wouldn't she be a direct child of God? Okay, that was never made dogma. There, there, it, within Catholic Church, there are some people that say that she was born sinless. She didn't have any sin either. Um, others that say, well, that's probably pushing it a bit. Um, but even then, she's still just a person. She's she still she she wasn't like Jesus is. Son of Mary and God the Father, specifically. Mary was the daughter of two humans. It's not like it's not like her mom was visited by the Holy Spirit. So Mary was anyway, the point is is more information than we needed about stuff that we don't actually agree with in our church. But so the, but the idea is that it was unquestionable now. You had to believe that Mary saved the world with Jesus. It's also when the Pope clarified that he himself is unquestionable when speaking ex cathedra, right? This is that time, when then that Pope who figured this out. The Council decided the Roman Pope is the true vicar of Christ. He is Christ's stand-in. That's what vicar means. You're there vicariously for Christ. The head of the whole church, the father of the teacher of all Christians, and to him was committed in blessed Peter by our Lord Jesus Christ, the full power of tending, ruling, and governing the whole church. And when our archbishop said, well, we still want to make sure you bounce things off of church tradition, right, before you, before you finalize things, Pius loudly exclaimed, I am the tradition. I don't have to bounce anything off of anything. That's Pius. For that matter, it's the council where he explained that the Pope should have control, not only unquestionable control over the church, but also over all political authority. So the church is, the, the, pardon me? Yeah, not so much. Strangely enough, the Italian king, Vittorio Emmanuel II, didn't like that so much. Go figure. Anyway, so, all this got cut short with the Franco-Prussian War, 
which is why we talked about the Franco-Prussian War as much as we did, when France could no longer defend Rome against Italy, which is an interesting concept. History is such a weird thing. There's a point when Rome was defended by France against Italy, because France was this Catholic power defending Catholic Rome against secular Italy. Anyway, but Rome had to pull its forces back from Rome. France had to pull its forces back from Rome, which meant that Rome was open to invasion by Italy. So Italy invaded Rome, exiled the Pope to the Vatican. They said, that's it. The only power you actually get anymore is in Vatican City. We'll give this to you. You're in total control of that. But you no longer get to have your own papal states. That's over now. So, 1962. Brand new Pope John XXIII convened a new Vatican Council to address all the stuff that didn't get covered the last time. Because it got cut short. They only got to some of the stuff they were hoping to cover. Which I think is interesting because since the first one was all about modernism is bad, you can't mess with tradition, the Pope is the tradition, this one said, you know, we need to embrace modernism. We really need to get more modern. So just in terms of the convening, people already were like, know about this. But he was named Time's Man of the Year for doing it. So though Catholics might have had a problem with Vatican II, Time Magazine said, Vatican II rocks before you even get into it. Anyway, the Pope preached in 1961 about the need to bring the church up to date. He said the Ecumenical Council will reach out and embrace under the widespread wings of the Catholic Church the entire heredity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Its principal task will be concerned with the condition at the modernization aggiornamento. Uh, oh, thank you. It kind of threw me with the lights going out. Of the church after 20 centuries of life. So we're going to change things. We're going to bring it all up today. We're going to look at all the churches, the entire heredity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody, we're going to fix it. There's this immediate response. Cardinals and bishops everywhere. A small number went, Adornamento! Yay! That's great! Let's do that! Finally! we got to get up to the times! And much larger said, are you nuts? That is, by definition, irreverent. That is unworshipful. It is wrong. Everything about the nature of Catholic worship is predicated on reflecting and preserving tradition. Isn't that, isn't that what, in large part, Luther got in trouble for? Is he, he actually said, maybe we should base things on Scripture and not on tradition? We should use tradition, but first and foremost on Scripture. And they said, no. Catholic tradition, Catholic hierarchy... That's what decides things. And that's, that was the main argument against Luther. And they're like, this, everything we do is supposed to design to keep everything exactly the way it was. You go to a Catholic church, it's supposed to feel exactly the way it did you know, for your grandparents. The Tridentine Mass, named after Trent, where it was, it was come up with. The Tridentine Mass, the basic liturgy of the worship service, hadn't changed since 1570. 400 years! Mass had looked pretty much the same. Little tweaks here and there. It's pretty much exactly the same. The Mass is still com led completely in ecclesiastic uh, ecclesiastical Latin, which is not even Latin Latin. It's funky Latin. It's, it's Latin with simplified grammar and pronounced as if you were reading it in Italian. It's a special kind of Latin. Nobody would understand it. Latin scholars who studied Julius Caesar would have struggled to understand it because it's being spoken in a different kind of Latin than they spoke. 
For that matter, think about priestly vestments. Think about the, the Swiss guards. Everything is designed to look like it stepped out of the Middle Ages, right? Because the whole point of this is to emphasize that the Catholic Church is grounded in tradition that doesn't change. It's utterly distinct from the modern world. To make it look more like the modern world, therefore, is to undermine worship. Right? So, when John uh, the 23rd died, his successor, Paul VI, continued on with what he started and got on the cover of Time magazine also for doing it. So, lots, this is back when popes regularly made it to the cover of Time magazine. The council issued a bunch of declarations. First off, it declared that um, though the Catholic Church is the only true religion in the world, and it's only through adherence to that Catholic Church that temporal polit uh, polities receive their perfection as human societies. It's only through the Catholic Church that any governments even have any kind of anything. Human beings still have to discover that all on their own, of their own free will. You can't compel somebody to join the Catholic Church, which we look at now, and, well, yeah, but there are times in history where that hasn't been so clear. So this is kind of an important one. It's like, no, no. Every, every human being has an essential dignity that we need to follow here. They also declared that the love and example of Christ means that we need to get out of the world and do some social justice. We need to actively involve ourselves with things going on in the world. If you see something, even in areas that aren't strictly Catholic, if you see, uh, uh, if you see genocides going on, if you see inadequacies of the poor, you need to address it. Again, we look at this now and we go, yeah. That has not always been the case. So, yay! They also declare that there, that there are truths worth noting and worth agreeing with in religious systems like Hinduism and Buddhism. They aren't the truths, but they have God's truths in them. And even Islam mirrors Catholicism in its monotheism, in its respect for Abraham and Mary and Jesus. It doesn't feel the same way that we do toward them, but... It's basically a sister faith in a lot of different ways, and we need to work with them. But the biggest, most controversial thing that they did was say, neither Jews nor Judaism should be held responsible or guilty for the death of Christ. Up until this time, though there had been the occasional cardinal, the occasional pope, the occasional priest that said, hey, let's back off from our anti-Semitism, up until 1962-63, the official stance of the church had been these are the ones who killed Jesus. Centuries and centuries, millennia, of saying these are the people who killed Jesus. But this one said, this, this particular dictate said, true, the Jewish authorities and those who follow their lead pressed for the death of Christ. Still, what happened in his passion cannot be charged against all the Jews without distinction. All of them then alive. Every one of them there. No, you can't do that. Nor against the Jews of today. This is 2,000 years later. You can't sit there and look at your Jewish neighbor and say, you killed Jesus. No, he didn't. It's not fair. That's kind of a big deal. An amazing number of cardinals balked at that and saying, no, you're horrible for saying that. Of course they killed Jesus. We should hate them forever. But what's interesting is, more than all that, all those are big deals, right? I would say all those are big deals. Wouldn't you? But even more than that, the, the most controversial issues were not actually the doctrinal ones. The most controversial ones were the procedural ones. What do you do in an actual worship service? 
okay, yeah, you're going to change how we've done things the last 2,000 years with regard to the Jews. A little frustrated with that. But you're changing the color of carpet? Why is that? Why did we get so upset with that sort of thing? Why do procedural things oftentimes mean more to us than doctrinal things? We'll go to a church that looks and feels more like what we want, even if it teaches stuff that's completely wrong. Yeah. Your senses don't take in Okay, I agree. What else? Anything else? Okay, because maybe some of the doctrinal things don't automatically make somebody change their everyday life, but procedural things would. If you change where the door is, you've got to go through a new door every time. Yeah. Well, it, it could be that maybe a memorial for someone you gave money for that, and you don't want that to go for the neighbor. I mean, it couldn't be simple it, as that. It, it could be. It could be where, for whatever reason, let's expand that. It could be for whatever reason you have some sort of personal... My grandma always sat in that pew. That was a memorial to my aunt Matilda. Um, uh, my my great great grandfather sang that song or, or wrote that song that we no longer sing because somebody declared that somehow it's doctrinally inappropriate. You know, well, your great grandpa was wrong. How dare you? Well, he was wrong. Jesus was not ahead of lettuce. It's a beautiful song. It's meant a great deal to. Him. But it suggests that at least on some levels. To a lot of people, and I don't want to just pick on Catholics, to a lot of people's worship is more about the experience than it is about the doctrinal statement of things. At least on some levels. Which is understandable because it should be an experience. It should be an immersive experience. You should engage yourself on, on every level, on every on every sense of, you know, sensate level, on every emotional, relational level. And yet, worship at its core really should be Doctrinal. It shouldn't just be a, I enjoyed that or I didn't enjoy that. It should be, wait, did I, is, did he just say what I thought he said? Anyway, for instance, vestment requirements are relaxed. Up until then, priests are, are required to wear cossacks. Cossacks. These long, I don't know if any, a couple of you might be old enough to remember, all priests used to have to dress like this all the time, which looks very appropriately medieval, right? Because that's the way priests should look. But afterwards, clerical color on a black shirt's enough. You can just do that. Right? Pardon me? Is that like out of the magazine where you order them from? <laughs> <laughs> both these pictures are out of magazines where you can order them from. <laughs> both conservative clergy as well as many Catholics immediately saw this as irreverent, as a travesty, a breach of tradition, a level of casualness that undermined professional holiness. It didn't feel like worship anymore. This looks like a priest. This looks like some guy. He looks like, I mean, except for the color, he could just be like a human instead of a priest, right? Yeah. He could look like a Lutheran pastor or, or, or a couple of Methodists or, you know, the, the Episcopal. He doesn't scream, I'm not human anymore, right? Because that's important. Help me out here. Rich, which Rick Warren looks more pastoral, more reverently worshipful in these pictures? And you might say, none of them. I hate Rick Warren. Okay, get over yourself. But in general, do you have any kind of emotional reaction at all? 
times he's standing at a pulpit, but that one looks more professional. This looks like a coffee table. Both times he's got his arms up. Both times he's got a little mustache and beard. What's the difference? It's just cultural. I mean, culturally, we decided that a suit and tie is more dressy and there's absolutely nothing wrong. And, and I, I mean, I always try to dress professionally on this anymore. There's nothing wrong with saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show that I take this seriously. Nothing wrong with professionalism. Because scripturally, we're told what about how a pastor should dress? Well, in the Old Testament, um, you know, the priest and Aaron and everybody had a straight dress code. They did. And they said, you got to wrap your legs because you won't want to be exposed in front of God if it was very tight on Absolutely. That's priests, not pastors, but yes. And they're supposed to wear ephods and specific things on their turbans and specific stuff like that. They're supposed to dress every day professionally and differently than everybody else. No, actually they're supposed to dress in their services when they're doing services in specific ways that we never ask anybody to dress nowadays. So it's interesting that we go, yes, you should... You should dress a specific way anytime you're in the service or anytime that you, you know, actually, no, that's, that's something that we feel, not something that we read. There's nothing bad, nothing bad about that. But if we say, I'm sorry, I can't hear you as well because you're wearing short sleeves and not a tie, and I don't think that's really a pulpit, then again, I think the worship service gets to be more about the experience of it than it is about the depth of what's actually being presented. I think it's as much cultural as any. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Not that it's bad, just... just at, least, at least it wasn't a Cubs <laughs> Really? You come back after nine weeks and that's what you say? So, in the same way, in the same way, the mass itself is largely replaced by what's called the new order of the Mass, or what is colloquially known as the Mass of Paul VI, that allowed the priests to break with tradition in all sorts of interesting ways. First off, they were allowed to face their congregations. Up until that point, they weren't. They always had their backs to the congregation because they were always supposed to be facing the cross, right? Because they're performing a service to God between the people and God. They're not leading the people, per se. It's a different kind of mentality. And so... In the new mass, they can turn and face the congregation. They can actually say stuff to the congregation. And if for 400 years they didn't, you can imagine why in 1967 you go to church and they turn around and they start talking to you. You'd be like, why are you involving me? Which was exactly the reaction people had. I come to mass for you to do a sacrifice for me. You do not interact with me. You do not talk to me. I didn't come here. I did not join this community service to be part of a community. Thank you. Secondly, they're allowed to speak in the congregation's language. Because again, up to this point, ecclesiastical Latin, what one bishop, at least one bishop, but at least one bishop, referred to as, I'm not kidding, God's language. Because apparently God speaks ecclesiastical Latin. And an amazing number of Catholics said, no, I don't like this. It detracts from the service. Because now I know what he's saying. 
Did you know that abracadabra actually refers to something? Did you realize that? If I were to explain to you what they're actually getting at, would it feel as magical anymore? No, the magic is that I don't know. The mystical, there's a mysticism to church. You're not supposed to feel connected to it. It's supposed to be a magic trick performed by somebody in a costume. They are also allowed to turn in directions other than to the right. Used to be they had to turn to the right. Because there's a good reason why the word for left in Latin is sinister. And we use the term sinister to talk about things that are bad. Because everything to the left is evil. The Bible is clear on this, isn't it? Therefore, if a priest were to pick something up with his left hand, if he were to turn to his left, that is clearly irreverent. You would agree, correct? If you're in a Muslim land, would you agree? You never do anything with your left hand. That's... Yeah. <laughs> Except that part of why they do it that way is because of the sense of this is the dirty hand. And this is the clean hand, which is why they do all the dirty stuff with their left hand, which is why the right hand is clean. But the point is, we have a tendency to say, I know it's not necessarily in Scripture, but this is for 400 years. Left has been evil. For him to turn left, Michael, you were going to say something? But isn't it if he turns right, then he'll cross his to his left hand? Well, only a little bit. Last, you can allow lay people to read Scripture in the service. In the service. And women. Women can now read scripture in the service. The Bible is extremely clear that you don't, you don't let women, you don't let lay people do it. Remember, up until 1978, with Pope John Paul I, Catholics were usually actively encouraged not to read their Bibles, even in private. You shouldn't read it. That's for holy people to do. The only way you can understand your Bible is if a priest explains it to you. Therefore, it's dangerous if you try to read it on your own. Vatican II comes along and says, actually, why don't you have some why don't you have some people read it in the service? You can even have lay people read it. Do you understand why some people are like, I can't believe this? Catholics going to Mass are like, this is horrible. This is not even remotely what I think it should be. Bishops say, You're you're as bad as Protestants, actually. That came up on not post-Vatican II. Why you're letting the, the dress like Protestants? Why? One, one uh, cardinal wrote, you can go to the Tridentine Mass, you might as well be a Lutheran. It feels the same as that. Many bishops attacked the new Mass as, quote, a striking departure from the Catholic theology of the Mass, unquote. It's even heretical. They especially opposed the changes to the parts of the classic Eucharist portion of the service, the communion part, the Lord's table that we'll be doing today. Some of you not. Yeah. So, Mel Gibson feels a lot the same way. That's why he built his own chapel for his family to go to because the Catholic Church wasn't Catholic enough. Yeah. There's, a, there's a whole move of people like that. Classic Catholicism holds the doctrine of transubstantiation. 
the idea that the bread and the wine are mystically changed into when you ingest them into actual physical blood and flesh. I mean, back in the Middle Ages, they talked about if you were to cut somebody open immediately following communion, you'd see blood and flesh in their tongue. To which I would say, anytime that you cut somebody open, you're going to run into blood and flesh. Go, go figure. They like Christ's words at the Last Supper, where he says, "Take and eat. This is my body. Drink all this. This is the blood. This is my blood of the new covenant." That's. They're like, yes. He specifically said, "Take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood." They link it to John six, where he parallels um, God's provision of the last life-sustaining bread that they got from heaven. You know, the manna. With their lack of appreciation for Christ, says the new and better provision of life-sustaining bread from heaven. It's like, you, you got. You got bread from heaven before, but I am the bread of life. You know, your forefathers ate manna in the desert and they died. If you eat me, you don't die. This is eternal life. So I'm the living bread that comes down from heaven. You will live forever if you do this. this. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the world. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up in the last day, for my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. And they go, well, clearly, that means that it's mystically changed in communion to flesh and blood. Which is an application, though nothing in John 6 seems to be equating it to that, other than the fact that he's talking about flesh and blood. So in traditional pre-Vatican II, the Tridentine Mass made it extremely clear that the Mass, in particular the Eucharist part, physically re-sacrificed Jesus week after week after week so that you could retain your salvation. That's why you go to Mass. If you can't go to Mass, you're going to have a problem. Because Jesus continued in John 6, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. So in John 6, if he's actually talking about communion, it's something you have to keep doing in order to retain your salvation. You have to keep taking communion and keep ingesting Jesus, or else you're going to burn in hell. Which is why excommunication... The idea that you can't go to communion or take communion anymore is about the scariest thing that you can imagine being a Catholic, right? So you have to understand how the, all the theology goes together. When we talk about somebody being excommunicated, if I, if I were to say, Cliff, you're excommunicated, all of us would go, oh, no, that's just mean. He's going to feel bad about that. We like Cliff being part of the communion service. If I say, as a Catholic priest, hey, Catholic Cliff, you're excommunicated, you'd all say, Cliff's going to burn in hell? Different vibe. It's not just the Anabaptist kind of shunning. This is saying, no, you, you, don't get to, you don't get to have eternal life because of the nature of how we see the Eucharist. The Tridentine Mass specified transubstantiation and specified sacrifice. The Mass of Paul VI glosses over both of those. I'm not saying, I'm not saying it, it disagrees with those. It just consciously removes that language from the Mass. They didn't change the theology. They're like, let's not complicate things. Now that we are actually using words and language that people understand, I don't want to have to explain that every week. I want to explain that we have to re-sacrifice Jesus over and over. Do I have to explain that this is actually the blood, the blood and body of Jesus? I don't really want to go into all that every week. Let's just skip all that language. Which... If you're a priest, if you're a cardinal, you can understand whether you'd be like, That's important! You can't just skip that! So, classic Catholic service. 
Just like in the Old Testament, a priest performs a blood sacrifice on an altar on behalf of the people of God in a holy temple building. That is the classic Eucharist service, the Catholic sense. What we do, what we'll do this morning, a shepherd, not a priest, because those are different things. It's not just different terminology. They're different roles. A shepherd leads a modified Seder, not a sacrifice, standing at the Lord's table. It's not an altar. I, I understand that, that some, even Protestant churches, will refer to it as an altar. I don't see it as an altar because we're not sacrificing anything there. Reminding the people of God of a once-for-all sacrifice, not a repeated one, that Jesus has already performed, I'm not making a sacrifice, that makes the people into a holy temple. The building is holy too. The building is set apart, but that's not the holy temple. Is it? I understand that it might seem like, well, you're splitting words. Do you understand? Pastors have died for this over the centuries. I mean, that, that once you start getting into the Reformation, once you start getting into Lutheranism, and you start getting into Calvinism, you start getting into Anabaptism, there are guys that went to their deaths saying, actually, I think we've got this all wrong. I think we've had the wrong parts and the wrong order of what's going on here. Lots and lots, especially lots and lots of Anabaptists died for recognizing these distinctions. And it's important. Not that we sit there and slam the Catholics for this, but that we realize we're doing very different things. Even if they look similar, we're doing very different things in very different ways. For potents, new people who say, yeah, this is great. They said, no, it'll make the Mass more accessible to people, to Catholics and non-Catholics. Everybody will like it more because they'll understand it better, they'll interact with it, and so they'll be drawn to it. Because if you explain it better, if you make it more accessible to people, isn't this what 1980s evangelicalism was all about? Can we please make the service more accessible to people who don't have a clue what's going on in the service? Can we have seeker-driven services? Can we, can we conscious? Clearly this works, yes? result. Well, that's a good point. Because opponents of the New Order said, no, it's the inaccessibility of holiness. It's keeping God at a reverent distance. It's not interacting with Him that makes the Mass something worshipful. You don't want it to be familiar. If you are familiar with God, are you revering Him? Jim Irwin used to call God Dad when he prayed. Clearly unworshipful and offensive. Yes? To some people, yes. Especially if you didn't know what he was doing, he might come across as casual, and casual is bad. To other people understood, you go, no, he's praying to the God and Father of the universe, but he's, he sees him as his immediate dad. He's close to God. Reverence and intimacy at the same time. That's the definition of worship, isn't it? Reverence and intimacy. If you have int intimacy but no reverence, you go, great, you've got a buddy. If you have reverence with no intimacy, great, you've got fear. Reverence and intimacy, now you've got worship. They said, now, the intimacy is the problem. We don't want to be this close to God. It's uncomfortable. And yes, there were guys who specifically made that argument. To get close to God is to lose the sense of the transcendence of God. He is not close. That's not the point. And they noted that 75% of Catholics regularly attended Mass in 1958, 25% attended in 2002. It's not working. And their argument, 
And to be honest, kind of a valid argument is that when you talk to Catholics about it, they're like, it just doesn't feel the same. It's not the same experience. It's some kind of interactive, casual thing where they're talking the vernacular of the people. That's not worship. Help me out here. Well, I was just going to say, is that, remember your question, I was going to say, does that reflect anything going on in the, in the, in the evangelical circles of, of Protestantism? It's, it doesn't feel like it was before. It's, it, it feels much more casual. They're talking the language of the people. It's more know, entertainment than it is worship. Not that every Protestant church does this great. I, 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 sometimes, yes, it is just entertainment. Yes, it is just mollifying the, the masses. But isn't this the same argument that, that Protestants have made with some of the things going on in Protestantism? So this isn't a Catholic thing. It's just we're talking about it in terms of Vatican II, but this is a people thing. Yes, ready. I was just saying, I'd rather compare 58 to 68 than 58. I mean, that's a full generation. It is. 42 years, there's no full generation. And, and, and some of that is that there haven't been necessarily a, a, a comprehensive examination of that, I don't think, in the, in, the, in the intervening years. But some of that, I think, with that particular set of, of, of uh, of numbers that was saying the last generation got it and this generation has been raising something that doesn't work. So I think the whole point of why in 2002 they they took those numbers and looked at it and say, look, you killed an entire generation of Catholics, basically. Yes? Yeah. So as someone who works in Canada, um, it's not causation. Um, it's it may not even be. Exactly. Because there are other things going on in the world at the same time, aren't there? Other secularizations going on in the world, which is why we have a whole class on world history and church history and how they intertwine. Oh, I agree. And yet, and yet, this is bishops going. Look what you did. So. Is it the Protestant church about the same way though? Um. Not that precipitous a drop off. Well, in mainline denominations, yes. And in other denominations, not necessarily. I mean, I'm not going to say that there hasn't been drop offs, but this, this suggests something. Now, exactly what, I don't know. But to go from 75% and then a generation later, 25%, it suggests stuff. I'll leave it to you to figure out what it suggests. But no, that's a pretty significant drop off. Yeah. So what they're saying is those that admit to being Catholic. Only 25% are actually going. Correct. Those which are, is probably in Europe about 1%. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Now let's go back to your earlier statement, though. In Europe, you can say much the same thing about a lot of Protestant churches. Yeah. There's a number of there's a number of Anglican churches in England today where there's there's some Anglican bishop or or, or vicar speaking to three rather old people and saying, "Hello, thank you so much for being here this morning." So. Um, today, Catholics are split between older members who miss the old days and younger ones who don't know anything but what they got right now. Which is interesting because some people have argued, especially like in the last years, that Catholicism is actually on an upswing. You have more young people actually joining the Catholic Church than, than, than in some previous years. In part because they go, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. They have no knowledge of a Tridentine Mass. It just, this feels... Funky enough as it is. Um, but again, that's much like the Protestant churches because people's is people's. We, we, do, we do the same sorts of things. Um, 
Aristotle talked about that. Aristotle talked about, who was from even before the 1960s, Aristotle talked about how um, old people dress out of style and don't like that young people play their music so loud. And young people are doing weird hairstyles and dress funny because they're trying to get noticed. Aristotle talked about that. I'm telling you, peoples is peoples. We don't change a lot over the centuries and millennia. Because I'm pretty sure young people look at old people and go, you dress funny. And young people and old people look at the young people and go, how do you, how do you think that's how you should wear pants? It's amazing. But there is a small, yes? Um, back to Vatican II. I had heard that Vatican II, uh, Luther's 90, whatever, Five. 95 theses, that uh, Vatican II kind of got in line with quite a few of those. Um, like 80 or 90% of those now aren't problems because of that. Because of a lot of different things over the centuries. Vatican II kind of summarized a lot of that. But there have been a lot of changes over the centuries. Uh, like, they hadn't done indulgences in a long time, which is the, one of the main things that you start talking about. Um, they, um, they, they had started working on a joint Lutheran-Catholic doctrine of justification. Can we find a, a, a doctrine of justification that we will both agree with? And, they, and it was around this time. So, I mean... Yes, it's part of, it wasn't, I, think, I don't think it was directly part of Vatican II, but it was around the same time. And they eventually they came up with something um, that most Lutherans were willing to sign and most Catholics were willing to sign, except that the official Catholic Church and, and a lot of, the, a lot of the, the, the cardinals said, if only we could all sign this, but we can't because Lutherans are not part of the church. We refuse to sign this with pagans, and they have no authorization to sign this on account of they're not Catholics. So anybody within the Catholic Church can sign a joint declaration that you agree with the Catholic Church. Anybody outside the Catholic Church, you're only echoing truth without actually being Christians. So it is, it is interesting. So yes, there, there was a move toward, toward some commonality, but some of the structure is still prevented. Yeah. Gary and I were in a Bible study where someone shared about a young woman who shared the four spiritual laws with the Pope. Oh, and that God. they thought that that was related to Vatican II. Just Which pope? Uh, John the Twenty-Third, the one who started it? No, I think. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't know. I just remember hearing that story that this this very on fire young woman sharing the forest. Praise so, God. The only thing I've never been able to, you know. The person seemed like a fairly respectable source, but I've never been able to follow up or find anything more about it. So. Oh, yeah. Well, and there's really good popes. I mean, I think Vatican II rocks. I mean, I, I still look at it and say, stuff I disagree with, but post-Vatican II Catholic Church looks a lot better to me than pre-Vatican II Catholic Church. Um, I love the John Pauls. John Paul I and two. those guys rocked. Those are good popes. Um, somebody also told me one time that Nikita Khrushchev became a Christian before he died. I'm like... I don't know, but that'd sure be great. You know, I, I put a lot of this in the, well, when I get to heaven, I'm, I'm probably going to scratch my head and go, really? <laughs> to a lot of this. <laughs> but yes, I, I think it, 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 it was a, again, it's an extremely controversial time. But, but yeah, post-Vatican II, there's a lot fewer differences between Catholicism, at, which, again, is one of the things that some of the cardinals were saying. You might as well be Lutherans now. There's a small but vocal group that believe that since Vatican II, did heresy, 
There have actually been no popes since Pope Pius XII. The rest of them have been heretics because we've been in a post-Vatican II world. This is a great pope to end on, if you ask me. They're not horrible, but not good. So, I don't know. So yes, there, 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 there are some that just go, nope, 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 no popes. No nothing. But 1983, Pope John Paul II, uh, under new canon law, declared it ecclesiastically illegal to disagree with an ecumenical council called by a pope. So, <laughs> everything's cool. You can't How disagree. Have popes done that? Yeah, but it works! <laughs> you can't disagree with Vatican II, because the pope said so. Of course, these guys sit there and go, what pope? <laughs> Everybody else goes, well, I guess we got to buy into it, because the pope said, you can't disagree. Is it like, because I said so? Little, yeah, no, 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 no. You get the wrong stress in a sense. Because I said so. <laughs> But he's a nice pope. I like Pope John Paul II. Yeah. yeah I, I always struggle figuring out how Joe can say the pope is a heretic because, in my mind, the pope is Catholicism. Not these popes. So, but, but if if they don't, but if he doesn't believe that they're real popes, then that makes more sense. There you go. Ah, history. You explain things so well. All right. 1962. Moving on. Also, when Engel versus Vital was decided. Which, everybody goes, why do I care? Alright. Throughout the first two centuries of the nation, it's pretty common for teachers to begin the class day with a prayer. They led a prayer every morning. Um, not every school, but most schools. Some of you are older than at all? You run into that? Okay, we're talking about public schools. Um, in 1955, the New York Board of Regents even developed a prayer that they said this. This is a pretty inoffensive prayer. We're not requiring it, but this is what we're recommending that you use. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee, and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Amen. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty inoffensive. To most Christians today, we tend to look at this and we go, oh, it's kind of quaint, it's kind of sweet, kind of nice. Um, some people will remember the good old days back when we used to allow prayer in school. Um, everybody will read this prayer and go, that's, as prayers go, you didn't even mention Jesus' name. This is pretty, it's pretty chill, as prayers go. The regents, just even themselves, said the whole purpose of this is to combat juvenile delinquency and counter the spread of communism. <laughs> we're not trying to create Christians, we're trying to create people who aren't, like, killing each other and stuff, so... Please, just do some prayers. But consider if every kid in American schools was asked to devoutly pray to Allah every morning. Would you tend to look at that as quaintly sweet? Would you have the same emotional reaction? If not, then do you understand why to non-Christians, even the most benign prayers, are patently offensive? You sit there and you go, this... I'm being forced to worship against my conscience. And not just atheists. I mean, you can imagine an atheist looking at this picture. We told all the children, including yours, that they had to pray. An atheist would be offended, but not just atheists. Stephen Engel, a Jewish father and a founding member of the New York affiliate of the ACLU, the Civil Liberties Union, was offended seeing his son pray this way. He's like, you know, we don't pray this way as Jews. This is not the way that we pray. We don't sit there with our hands folded together and pray 
simple prayers like this and then say amen. We usually stand. We have our hands up or we're reading scriptures. We sway back and forth. It's a different kind of vibe entirely. So even though you didn't say Jesus, it's clearly a Christian prayer. And it's offensive that you had my child do this. So he joined with four other plaintiffs who were also uncomfortable with prayer in general and sued school board president William Vitale, saying this is, this is wrong. This breaks the, 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 the uh, Constitution. The case went to the Supreme Court with proponents arguing the prayer is voluntary and simply upholds the free exercise of religion. Now, it's okay. It's, it's, nobody's forcing them to do this. And, and we're not supposed to tell people they can't do religion. Our opponents of prayer said, no, the context itself is coercive. You can't do this. Students are going to be subject to emotional distress. If, uh, if, if, if a guy meets a, a girl on the street and says, I think you're pretty, would you go out with me? She will say, you're a creep, and walk away. If a boss looks at a secretary in, under him in an office and says, I think you're pretty, would you go out with me? The context makes that coercive, right? Even if he uses exactly the same vernacular that, that you would on the street. You know, no, context makes that harassment. And they're like, no, the context here says students or teachers are going to make you uncomfortable if you opt out. So the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Engel saying that, quote, by using its public school system to encourage recitation of the Regent's Prayer, the state of New York has adopted practice wholly inconsistent with the Establishment Clause of the Constitution which, if you remember, says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, including the, the free exercise of not-Christian religion. Interestingly, dissenting judge Potter Stewart argued it was the Supreme Court that was actually prohibiting the free exercise of religion. So which is it? Is it the Supreme Court that is saying you can't do religion in the classroom and is therefore prohibiting free exercise of religion? Or is it the New York Board of Regents who are prohibiting free exercise of religion by forcing kids to pray in Christian-y ways? Can you do both? So, where are you at with these months? It is. But I do get the idea of what well, yes, the Supreme Court is saying you cannot practice religion, period. Then that's something, but if they say, hey, we're going to give you five minutes to do what you want to do. Which is what a lot of school districts did, and that eventually got shot down because they're like, you know you mean prayer. Yeah. Foundation coming. So that, that was the kind of toleration that was in mind right. by the founders. Not um, anti Christianity is okay equally. It was the Christian toleration. But that's a monotheistic toleration. But that is the beauty of any kind of law. Do you follow the intention of the law or do you follow the letter of the law? And on one level, we should say, oh, the intention. Clearly, what, what was meant by this? Except that's always open to interpretation. The letter is too, but the intention even more so. 
you, you kind of have to follow what's actually on paper. I mean, we went into this when we were talking about separate but equal. In, in and of itself, on paper is not yeah, unconstitutional. In point of practice, what it ends up doing ends up being very unconstitutional. So you have to find the right way to approach that. So, as is almost always the case here, it wasn't really just by parents versus the school board. Briefs were filed in support of the plaintiffs by the ACLU. Go figure. Uh, how many of you does that shock that the American Civil Liberties Union would say, You're right! Prayer is bad! Um, the American Jewish Committee also jumped in and said, this is wrong, because, again, it's not Jewish kind of prayer, it's Christian kind of prayer. And they were supported by the Catholic Church, who said, lay Protestants leading prayer? No. The very concept of it is, no, is an affront to Catholicism. Only Catholic clergy should lead prayer, not Protestant lay people. So, yeah, we are supporting the abolishment of school prayer. The Synagogue Council of America, which interestingly, nine years later, had a big push for a prayer vigil, public prayer vigil in Washington, D.C., in support of the persecution, or to support Russian Jews who were being persecuted in the Soviet Union. So it's like, eh, it's all kind of a matter of timing. And then also the American Ethical Union, which is a secular humanist organization that says we want to promote morality, but without God. The whole point of secular humanism is you can be moral, you can be good, and you should consciously avoid God in the process. So it's really interesting that you've got, you've got political liberals, Jews, Catholics, and atheists all working together on one thing. And 20 states, the government of 20 states sent notices to the U.S. Supreme Court saying, please uphold school prayer. Please don't change this. It'll be bad for the country. It'll be bad for the morality of the country. But, but the, the court obviously ruled in favor of abolishing school prayer. In 1992, the court prohibited clergy-led prayer at middle school graduation ceremonies. You can no longer do that uh, in, the, in the United States. In 2000, the court extended the ban to school-organized student-led prayer, even at high school football games. You can't even have student-led things, which is why we have see what the poll essentially off-school property around the pole saying we're we're just having a public statement that happens to be Christian. But the court no it, the court didn't view those prayers as directly coercive, but it said that any objective student would still quote unquestionably perceive the inevitable pre-game pre-game player can't talk today. Pre-game prayer as stamped with her school's seal of approval. If you are having a student-led prayer at a school event, the school is still letting that student-led prayer happen. So the school is still supporting that. So it's still a, a, a public school, well, I'm sorry, it's still a public school generated religious observation and thus can't be held. 1963, the next year, Abingdon School District versus Shep was decided. I know, nobody knows these, but it's, it's, it's helpful to know that some of these names. How many else? You just had the school prayer issue. So next comes mandatory reading of the Bible in schools. You can't have that either. Unitarian Universalist Edward Shemp brought suit against Abington School District in Pennsylvania on behalf of his son, Ellery. Since 1928, Pennsylvania law had required that, quote, at least 10 verses from the Holy Bible be read without comment, because they didn't want to offend anybody, at the opening of each public school on each school day, unquote. 
as well as reciting the Lord's Prayer. So you should always read ten verses from the New Testament or the Old Testament. Does that work? Is that a good thing? Is that a healthy thing under the legal system that we have? No, you can't do that. Again, you know, people will angrily sit there and say, America isn't a Christian nation. But we aren't. We're not a Christian nation. We're a secular nation that was founded on Christian ideals. And that's going to change, because eventually at various points you have to decide, do you, do you lean toward those Christian ideals of the intentions of things, or do you go with the secular notion of the, the verbiage of how we set all this up? And so, yeah, we're not, a, we're not a Christian nation. We've never been a Christian nation. We're a secular nation that was founded by primarily Christians. 1956, 16-year-old Ellery had staged a protest against the law by bringing a copy of the Quran to school and reading from that instead, for which he was sent to the principal's office. And his dad says, wait, you got punished for not reading the Bible. By definition, that means it's unconstitutional because a government system, a public school, has coercively punished you for not doing religion the way they think you should do religion. Part of that might have been how Ellery came across that day and the fact that he was consciously trying to undermine the teacher and different things. You can read into that whatever you want. But the argument is still made and the precedent is still set that he got in trouble because of the ripple effects of bringing a Quran to school and reading from that instead of reading from the Bible. So when the lawsuit finally made its way to the Supreme Court in 1963, it's lumped together with other suits including Murray versus Curlin, which is first brought to a court in Baltimore by an angry mother named Madeline Murray, who later named, married a guy named O'Hare, so Madeline Murray O'Hare. So anybody remember the name Madeline Murray O'Hare? Okay kind of all over the place in the 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s. She argued that her son had been experiencing bullying for not participating in the Bible readings, and she said that the bullying had been condoned by the administration. I don't know if it was or not. But Shemp's case quickly became eclipsed by Murray's. Even though technically the Supreme Court case was about him, she pretty much almost immediately became the center point. In large part because she had a very abrasive personality and very public disdain for religion. Shemp just said, I don't, I'm a Unitarian Universalist. I don't think you should be telling other people what to believe. She went on record as saying religion has ever been anti-human, anti-woman, anti-life, anti-peace, anti-reason, anti-science. The God idea has been detrimental not only to humankind but to the earth. It's time now for reason, education, and science to take over. Now, I don't normally do this kind of stuff. It's helpful to understand her character when walking into this. 1941, she married John Ross, but then divorced in 1945 because she had an affair with a guy named William Murray, Jr. So she didn't want Roths anymore. But Murray refused to divorce his own wife because he's a devout Catholic. I can have an affair and apologize for it and be okay, but I can't get a divorce because they'll never say that's okay. As long as I go to confessional, I can apologize for the adultery and everything will be all right. You can't apologize for divorce and everything will be all right. I never get to take communion again. What are you, nuts? Being a good Catholic, complicated. But she took his name anyway. Even though he didn't divorce his wife, she changed her name to Madeline Murray because she considered herself his wife, and she named their son, born to them, William J. Murray III in 1946. 
1954, she had a second son with another boyfriend. In 1959, she attempted to take her children and defect to the Soviet Union because she liked their state-sponsored atheism. Pardon me? They wouldn't take her! Because the Soviet Union, unlike every movie, you see, <laughs> Soviet Union didn't take everybody. Some people are like, oh, you're nuts. <laughs> we, we, we don't want you here. Yeah, when Khrushchev says, you're kooky and we don't want you here. 1960, she moved back to Maryland and filed a lawsuit against the Baltimore School District that we've just been talking about here. And then in 1963, she founded the American Atheist to help support the lawsuit. And this one's still going on. Later that same year, she actually fled Baltimore to escape charges that she assaulted five Baltimore policemen, and she ended up in Mexico. So while this is actually being argued in front of the Supreme Court, she's out of the country because she didn't want to get arrested for assaulting five Baltimore police officers. Anna? 1965, she's back in Austin, Texas, where she married Richard O'Hare, and thus became Madeline Murray O'Hare. But she's wacky and colorful, and she was all over the place. Repeatedly on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. She went on Phil Donahue. She went on all of it. She was in magazine. In fact, Life Magazine, in 1964 issue of Life Magazine, they called her America's Most Hated Woman. It's like, nobody likes her, and everybody watches her when she's on TV shows. So she, she, Justin Bieber, you know, nobody likes her, but everybody loves watching the train wreck that is her. She even sued NASA when on Christmas Eve in 1968, the Apollo 8 astronauts read from Genesis when they saw the lunar sunrise. You guys remember about that? There's like, I, we can't help but do this. We've got to read the first. They, they passed the first several verses of Genesis around from astronaut to astronaut. Each of them read a section of it because they were so profoundly moved and they ended with saying, Merry Christmas, everybody, back on Earth. This is just amazing to us. She's like, yeah, you can't do that. It's a government-sponsored activity and they're reading from Genesis. I absolutely love the Supreme Court's response to this. How would you respond to this if you're the Supreme Court? I don't only love their responses. I love this. Yeah! They said, I'm sorry, this is a little out of my jurisdiction. Maybe they're on government, but literally, they are out in space. They want to read from Genesis, they can read from Genesis. However, however, the next year, NASA did command Buzz Aldrin not to quote the Bible when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Like, you don't get to quote scripture, because they were still in the middle of ongoing lit litigation with Madeleine Murray O'Hare. Mm -hmm. So it's, so I mean, this stuff. Well, the moment they planted the flag, it became partially U.S. soil, which actually does, does make it under U.S. jurisdiction. Though he was allowed to conduct history's first communion service in space. So he did a communion service for himself on the moon, where he read from John 15 and Psalm 8 silently to himself. He just couldn't do it over the airwaves. And then NASA even kind of hushed that up. They're like, okay, don't tell anybody that you did that. We're going to get in such trouble. Anyway, Supreme Court decided in favor of the plaintiffs in an 8-1 to decision, arguing the Establishment Clause was not intended merely to prohibit Congress from establishing one religion at the expense of others, but also ensure it doesn't even act to promote religion in general. We 
can't even in any way look like we are saying religion is a good thing or bad thing. They cited the comments of a justice from an earlier decision that the Establishment Clause, quote, was not to strike merely at the official establishment of a single sect, creed, or religion, but to create a complete and permanent separation of the spheres of religious activity and civil authority by comprehensively forbidding every form of public aid or support for religion. The United States cannot do anything publicly whatsoever to aid or support religion. Is that the origination the idea of separation of church and state? Or is that well, the modern take on it in, in a lot of, I mean, you could argue, as many people do, the, origin, the, the original sense of separation of church and state, all that's in the Constitution, clearly, in the Establishment Clause. There's a lot of us that would sit there and say, when you read the Establishment Clause, what it's saying is that the government can't direct religion. You can't make a religion and say you've got to be part of the state-sponsored church. But, given the letter of the law, obviously it's interpretable. For future reference, they came up with a litmus test to decide whether or not the Constitution is being violated in any given action. They said, what are the purpose and the primary effect of the enactment? What are you doing and what's the purpose and what happens? If either the purpose or the primary effect is the advancement or inhibition of religion, then the enactment exceeds the scope of legislative power as circumscribed by the Constitution. You don't get to do it. If you are inhibiting or advancing religion, it's bad. That is to say that to withstand the strictures of the Establishment Clause, there must be a secular legislative purpose and a primary effect that neither advances nor inhibits religion. And now we're back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago when we said, you get to put in God we trust on the, on the coins because it doesn't mean anything. As long as you indicate that this is simply secular religious trappings, it's the feel of religion. It's a level of ornamentation and formality that reminds us of the, the sanctity, the holiness of the secular state. As long as you do that, that's okay. The moment you actually mean that you trust in God, the moment you suggest that you actually trust in God, you'd have to take it off the coins. But as long as you don't mean it, it's okay to say it. That's the nature of it in, in general. 1980, Madeline Mario Harris, eldest son William, came forward to accept Christ at a church service in Gateway Baptist Church in Dallas. Her immediate reaction was to say, one could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother, I guess. I repudiate him entirely, completely, for now and all times, beyond human forgiveness. Never talked to her son. Because she believed in religious freedom. William went on to become a Baptist minister, founding the politically conservative Religious Freedom Coalition, which, among other things, aids Christians who are being, who are being persecuted for their faith in countries like the Soviet Union, which I thought was fascinating. Like, you came close to being a resident of the Soviet Union, and you eventually went back going, nope, nope, I'm defending Christianity in the Soviet Union and in modern Muslim and communist countries. Which suggests God's might, God might just be a smidgy bit bigger than a lot of what we try to do, even some of the biggest, splashiest things that we try to do. 1995, she and her youngest son, John, and... Uh, William's daughter were kidnapped, tortured, and murdered by David Waters, a disgruntled former employee of hers, an American atheist. It's a really sordid, unpleasant story. It just got made into a Netflix movie! 
Earlier this month, Netflix started streaming the original movie, The Most Hated Woman in America, a biopic covering most of what we've just discovered, discussed here. And no, before you even ask, I haven't seen it. I have no idea how good it is or how close it is to anything. But you want to Netflix it? Knock yourself out. Amazing, because I'm sitting there going, you're kidding. I just, I didn't plan it this way. Yeah, again, God's, God's big. You know, it's the same year that Martin Luther King Jr. led a march on Washington. Let's, uh, let's pick that up next week. But what would you say? How would you synopsize this moment in history, either world history or church history? Yeah, Jen. Well, just this, uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. And, and, yeah, whether there's a correlation or a causation, there's always a tr trick to say. Once we took prayer and, and Bible reading out of public schools, look at how delinquency rates rose, how teenage pregnancy rates rose. It, could it be, in part, caused by that? Absolutely. Could it also be that both uh, an increase in teenage pregnancy, an increase in delinquency rates, an increase in drug usage in schools, an increase in gang violence in schools, rising at the same time that we're taking religion out of the public schools, could it be that both of those are pointing to a secularization of our youth, secularization of our culture, that neither one is causing the other ones, but they're all related to a, a larger cause? Sure. There's no way to know for certain what's causing what, but there's a clear correlation where you say, amazingly, we remove all sorts of active overarching morality from schools and amazingly our kids start acting increasingly immoral you know, I'm pretty sure there's some correlates there are some correlations with some of that kind of stuff um, now what else what else do you see in terms of what's going on in the world here it's just amazing what one person can do to disrupt uh, some normalcy and, and, and standards Absolutely. Now, when we look back at like school prayer, we all said, oh, I'd actually be a little uncomfortable if, if the schools were making my children do Muslim prayers. So at least part of us should have a heart where we go, I'm a little uncomfortable now if I look at it from other people's perspectives about having Christian prayers in the public schools. And yet, another part of us as Christians would go, well, personally, I kind of liked it, though. And yet, i got to look at it and say, no, I'm a little uncomfortable with it. And yet, there is a, that level of, of dualism in that. Yeah. At the same time, if my kids, if, if we were over in North Africa and my kids were going to a public school there, I would not be uncomfortable with my kids being there during Muslim prayers. At home, I would be talking to my kids about prayer. And, you know, if I was really not uncomfortable, then the public school would be part of the private school. And that's what minorities I, should understand. I, Yes, and there's an argument there, and I don't want to argue against that. What I will do is play devil's advocate and say most of those countries that you're talking about don't necessarily have in their constitutions that we will in no way try to inhibit or push a particular religion onto somebody else. Um, and you have a level of interaction on some of these things where other people might feel uncomfortable. So the idea that that you might go to another country and your children be daily indoctrinated in completely different theology 
for eight hours out of the day. I don't know, how many hours out of the day do you indoctrinate your kids in Christianity? How many, how many hours of the day did you spend, as a parent, actively saying, let's talk about your faith in Jesus Christ? So, I mean, I hear you, but at the same time, I, 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 we need to understand, on some levels, you're absolutely right. This is one person uprooting normalcy and decency, and on some levels, other people look at this and say, one person can make a difference and take down the religious theocracy. Different ways of looking at things. But yes, you see a lot of people going, you know, perhaps we should be moving in the church more toward the world and less toward us running things in our own way. In all these, maybe those church traditions are bad. And some of these we should go, uh, maybe not bad, but maybe changeable. Others of these we should go, actually, I think we're losing something in the process of doing this. How do you decide which is which? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to, to worship you. Thank you for the opportunity to be in a land that allows us to worship you as, as we genuinely feel the Bible is showing us to worship you. Help us to, to see our nation, though, as, as one that not only allows for that freedom, but one that desperately needs missionaries to be reaching out to it. Help us, Lord, to love you well. Help us to ground ourselves in our faith and in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.